Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I'm told frequently that I have a problem of which I need to be delivered. Uh, I'm told that a cure exists for my problem if only I'll believe it and I'll reach out for it. Uh, the problem I'm told I have is not generally that I'm a sinner and I need salvation in Jesus, although that's true. The problem I'm told I have is not that I'm an alcoholic and I need to be delivered from alcohol. It's not a life-threatening disease of which I need to be cured. Instead, the problem that I'm told I have is that I'm bald. <laughs> there is a chorus of voices that saturate this culture, often featured on infomercials, that tell me that because of my lack of hair, my self-esteem will steadily decline. Or at least it should because of this embarrassingly blinding light that shines forth from my head. I'm told that my self-confidence, my social confidence will erode when I hear the words cue ball. My popularity and my relationships will inevitably diminish. And even my opportunities for financial success will likely be adversely affected just because I don't have hair. But I'm promised that there is redemption like for an individual like this. If only I'll buy the right product. And this redemption that's offered to me really offers to me a new life where I have restored to me not just my hair, but my entire life will be restored to me. I'll be self-confident again. I'll be content, successful, accepted, approved, and even adored by the masses because I'll have hair. That's what I'm told. Now, perhaps you've been delivered from this dreaded curse of baldness. But don't think that these cultural voices have nothing to say to you, because perhaps your hair is turning gray. And if that's the case, then you'll need to dye your hair. I mean, these are the kind of messages that you hear in a culture that's obsessed with our physical appearance and our bodies in general. We're obsessed with these kinds of things, and there's no escaping it. There's no escaping this cultural obsession, not if you're a man or a woman, young or old. Statistics would vary, but the vast majority of people, especially women and girls, but men and boys are affected as well, that report some level of anxiety or unsettledness about how they look, about how they think they look, and how they think other people think they look. And this is true both inside the church as much as it is outside the church. But how should Christians respond to this obsession over our bodies and the way that we look? How should we think about our physical appearance? And maybe more broadly, how should we view our own bodies? What is a biblical body image for Christians? How do our physical bodies, the way that we think about our bodies, the way that we care, our bo- care for our bodies, how does that intersect with the spirituality of Christianity, if at all? How do those two things intersect? Well, that's what I want to explore with you this morning, a biblical body image. And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, just a couple verses there, verses 7 and 8. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I admit at the outset, I'm breaking some preaching rules here. I'm not really going to consider the broader context of these verses in 1 Timothy, and I'm really only going to hone in on one phrase that Paul uses here in these words to Timothy. But 
even despite breaking those rules. I pray that God's truth is going to go forth this morning, that you'll hear the good news of the gospel, and that the beauty of Jesus will be set before you, and he would be honored and lifted up. So with that aim, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. You can follow along on the screen if you don't have uh, your Bibles this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You can be seated. Now, Paul's words here to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 can help us arrive at a biblical and balanced view of our bodies. But it's important for us to begin by admitting and acknowledging that we have a cultural problem and a cultural struggle with an overemphasis on the body. We are often led to think that rather than what Paul says being true here, that bodily training is of some value, we are often led to believe that bodily training and fitness, especially if it's for the purposes of enhancing our physical appearance, is of supreme value. That there's this cultural message and emphasis that ultimate importance is placed upon physical abilities, physical characteristics, and above all, perhaps, physical appearance. Now, of course, this overemphasis on our bodies and this obsession with our physical appearance, we need to admit, is not something that is unique to our contemporary time or unique to our culture as a country or in the West. Uh, the biblical stories of Jacob preferring beautiful and lovely Rachel to weak-eyed Leah, and the story of David being overlooked by his father Jesse, as well as the prophet Samuel because of his stature in favor of his brothers, demonstrates uh, that this overemphasis on the physical and on our appearance uh, goes beyond the bounds of particular times and particular places. But on the same token, we have to admit that we live in a hypersensual, a hypersexualized, and a hyperphysical kind of age when we are bombarded with images of the ideal physical appearance like never before like never before. And it affects us. Again, it affects people outside the church. It affects people inside the church. And so we begin to judge ourselves and others, not on the basis of internal conditions of our souls or internal virtues like the integrity of our character or on kindness, compassion, our courage, or honesty. Rather than being judged and assessed on those things, we judge ourselves and others based on the size of our waistline or judged on our height, or the features of our face, or the clothes that we wear. And the culture sets this standard for us of what we're supposed to look like. And we struggle and strive to reach that cultural standard. And if we judge that we don't measure up to that cultural standard for whatever reason, because we don't have the right body type, or because of visible moles, or scars, or birthmarks, or baldness, or because we have discolored, or crooked, or missing teeth, or our ears stick out too far, or the acne problem we have, our skin's too light, our skin's too dark, whatever it would be that causes us to imagine that we don't measure up to this cultural standard. 
Our response is to paint our faces to try to hide those flaws, or we seek surgery to try to fix them, or become obsessed with working out to change the way our bodies look, or we starve ourselves or binge and purge as we develop eating disorders, all in an attempt to achieve this cultural standard of what we're told we're supposed to look like. Now, the tragic truth is that this standard that our culture sets is basically impossible to reach. Only 5% of women have the body type that is typically portrayed in media outlets by models. 5%. And even the models that are portrayed don't actually look like they appear. That's demonstrated uh, by this photograph of country recording artist Faith Hill, <clears throat> who was photographed for the cover of Red Book. The actual photograph is on your left. Uh, the photograph that appears on the cover of Red Book is on the right. And I don't know how clearly you can see that, uh, but the lines underneath her eyes have been removed for the cover photograph. They're there on the left. They're completely gone on the right. Uh, the lines on her cheeks have been softened. Uh, clearly, the size of her arm has been drastically reduced, as has the width and size of her shoulder and the roundness of her back, noticeably smaller in the touched-up photograph. You can see a small fold of skin uh, uh, underneath her elbow, underneath her shoulder, rather, uh, that uh, protrudes because of the tightness of her dress. Notice how that's been completely removed in the touched-up photo. And really, I mean, her entire lower body has been shrunk in the photo that appears on the magazine. Because Faith Hill is on the cover, but she doesn't meet the cultural standard as she is. And so the image has to be adjusted. And notice, of course, Red Book contributes to this physical obsession, uh, advertising the use of skinny pills and looking and feeling your hottest. Well, apparently Faith Hill doesn't look hot enough, and so she has to be altered. Even 24-year-old actress Emma Watson, who you might notice uh, from the Harry Potter movies, 24 years old, doesn't meet this cultural standard, and so her images must be altered. It seems that what's required to have true value and ultimate beauty, according to this cultural standard, is being a physical specimen without spot or blemish or wrinkle. And maybe you're wearing yourself out trying to achieve this standard. But even if you could achieve the standard, you have to recognize that you can't maintain it. Even if you could achieve the standard, it is impossible to maintain because time and age will inevitably bring with it the deterioration and eventually the dissolution of your whole body and all of your physical features. <laughs> That's what will happen with time and age. Our bodies wear out and they end up in the ground. And maybe that's why it's no wonder that Paul says, in contrast to godliness, that bodily training doesn't seem to hold any promise for the life to come. Unlike godliness, it doesn't hold promise for the life to come. It's an empty idol. Like all idols, they're empty. But we need to acknowledge that this overemphasis on the Bible, and especially on our physical appearance, is an idol in our culture. And we turn to it, rather than turning to God, to find our assurance our acceptance, our approval, our beauty, and our glory. 
We look to this oftentimes instead of to God to provide us these things. But in the end, it's going to be exposed as empty, an empty idol that can't deliver what it promises. And to expose this emptiness, here's some of the things the Bible says about it. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. It's empty. But Proverbs goes on to say, A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In a similar way, addressing wives, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, directs his readers inwardly and away from the outward appearance. When he writes, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, inside, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I would want you to notice, I want everybody to notice, but I particularly want you ladies to notice that the Bible is not oblivious. Notice these two verses. The Bible is not oblivious to the kind of pressure this overemphasis also places upon women. It's nothing new. The Bible speaks to it. God is not unaware of it. And he directs us from the outward to the inward to find beauty. Because according to the Bible, beauty isn't defined or determined by outward appearance, but by a heart that loves God. That's how the Bible understands beauty. And the Bible is telling us here with an imperishable kind of beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that there's a beauty that can increase with age and will be more radiant at 90 than it is at 19. The question that we have to ask ourselves as those who look to the Bible for truth as Christians is do we believe that to be true? That there's an inward kind of beauty that increases with age and is more radiant at 90 than at 19. Ladies, do you believe that to be true? And do you think like that's true and live like that's true? And men, do you believe that's true, both for yourselves and for the women that are in your life and around you? Or are you buying the lie of the culture that appearance determines true beauty and ultimate value? Well, clearly, Christians in the church need to respond to this overemphasis on the body by believing and teaching what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that what matters is godliness. That's what matters. What's important is what's on the inside, in the heart. So the body doesn't matter. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say the body doesn't matter. That leads to an underemphasis on the body. Just as some people mistakenly conclude that bodily training is of supreme value, there's others who conclude that bodily training has no value. But that's not what Paul says. The overemphasis on the body comes from this hypersensuality. But the underemphasis on the body is often driven by this hyperspirituality. And both of them are wrong. It's this hyper-spiritual kind of attitude that the body and caring for the body doesn't matter. That's very common and typical in the church. Uh, it's why we can hear stories about how the reformer John Calvin, who lived in the 16th century, drove his body beyond proper limits. And we can hear these stories, and we admire him for it. It's well known that John Calvin frequently skipped meals, neglected sleep, and consistently overworked. 
And as a result, he suffered from lung diseases and infections, from kidney diseases, from digestive disorders, from bladder stones, and from gout, partly because he didn't care well for his body. He didn't care for himself physically. And while we can admire Calvin's tenacity for his labors in the kingdom, we shouldn't admire him for the way he neglected his physical health. And we certainly shouldn't follow his example of the way he ignored his physical health. This underemphasis, though, was present way before John Calvin. It dates back to the earliest times of the New Testament. Um, it's likely that this kind of Greek thought of the purest form of our existence was spiritual, and our bodies were prisons from which we needed to be delivered and liberated from, that crept into the church through Gnosticism. And so it's very present in the early church. This idea, this Gnostic idea that the spirit is good in us, and it's our body that is the source of evil and wickedness and sin. Spirit is good, body is bad. From the earliest days of the church, this crept in. But this idea is not just from Greek and Gnostic influences. This underemphasis also comes from a misunderstanding of the Bible, and particularly a misunderstanding of Paul. Because after all, doesn't Paul say that our problem with sin is because of our bodies? That our problem is because of our flesh. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17? He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Your flesh and your spirit are in opposition. They're at war to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So that's the root of the problem, right? Our bodies are the problem. But what's important for us to realize here is that when Paul uses the term flesh, he's often not referring to the physical body, but to our fallen nature. Sometimes he means our bodies, but oftentimes when Paul uses the term flesh, he's referring to our fallen nature, not to our physical bodies. A fallen nature that has corrupted and polluted us holistically which means our fallen nature affects both our bodies and our souls. We are fallen holistically. Every part of us is affected by the fall. But we're not sinful because we have bodies. Our problem is not that we're embodied creatures. Adam and Eve, have, Adam and Eve had bodies before the fall, and God pronounced them good. Our bodies aren't the source of our sin. It's true that sin flows in our bodies as well as in our souls, but sin flows from the fallen nature that we've inherited from Adam. And so it's not biblical to believe that sin finds its source and origin in our bodies. It's an unbiblical conclusion. But even those who can reject these errors of Gnosticism and a misunderstanding of Paul can still promote an underemphasis on the body. One of my favorite authors, that's why I'm not even going to tell you who said this, because I would encourage you to read this author, and I don't want you to be discouraged from reading him if I tell you who it is. It's one of my favorite authors, but he wrote this recently. Your body is just an earth suit created by God, and therefore it reflects God's glory because it's created by God, but it's designed to be a house for the real you, which is the heart. To which I would say, no. Your body is the real you. 
it's part of the real you. Certainly, your body, physical body, is not all there is to you, and not the most important part of what there is to you. But your body is really you. It's part of who you are. These are my hands. These are my arms. These are my eyes, my nose. This is my face that you're looking at. This is my voice that you're hearing. A voice that's produced by a very physical functioning of vocal cords, without which I would not be able to communicate to you inner thoughts and emotions and spiritual truths. And one of those spiritual truths that I'm wanting to proclaim and declare to you this morning is that according to the Bible, our bodies matter. It's part of what makes you, you, and me, me. Our bodies matter. There is a biblical emphasis on the body. Paul doesn't say that bodily training has supreme value. He doesn't say it has no value. What he says is bodily training has some value. It's important on some level. Our bodies are part of who we are, and our bodies and souls are interrelated. Our bodies and souls are interrelated. We are psychosomatic creatures. Anybody heard that term before, psychosomatic? It comes from the Greek terms for soul and body. That's what it means. That's what we're composed of, body and soul. And the body affects the soul, and the soul affects the body. We can't drive a sharp wedge in between these two things. It's important that we distinguish them from each other, but we can't totally separate them. And we know this from experience, don't we? You can't really separate soul and body completely. They work together. It's why we and the Bible will sometimes speak of inward things and use physical terms to do it. That we use the term heart to refer to both a physical organ and the spiritual center of who we are. It's why we talk about people rubbing us the wrong way. And most of the time we're not talking about something physical. It's psychological and relational. And we talk about our guts as something that can guide us and direct us, right? What is your gut telling you to do? We recognize the interconnection, but even on a deeper level, we recognize how connected our bodies and our souls are. And we think about the reality that people who are touched physically in an abusive way or who are sexually molested, that the problems that they experience are not limited to the physical wounds that they incur through that abuse, but that their souls are deeply and profoundly wounded when they're victimized in that way. So you tell me, is touch a physical thing or a spiritual thing? And those of you who sit in my Sunday schools frequently will know the answer to that question. The answer is yes. It's both. And think about this. Drunkenness. Is that a spiritual issue or a physical issue? Is fasting from food a physical or spiritual exercise? And what's more spiritual than love? What spiritual value and virtue are we called to that's higher than love? And yet, is there anybody in this room that is not less loving because you become impatient and irritable and easily angered when you're physically hungry or tired? Don't you find yourself less loving when you're hungry and tired? And I don't care who we're talking about in this room. The most mature Christian in the room 
you will have less success battling spiritual temptations when you haven't gotten enough sleep. When you're tired, you will be less effective at battling temptation. I was having a conversation with Josh Hollowell about this, and Josh said, he heard D.A. Carson, I think it was Josh who told me this, that D.A. Carson one time gave counsel to somebody that was struggling with a sin. He said, make sure you get enough sleep. That's good counsel, because our bodies and our souls are related. Physical posture in prayer. You ever think about that? I would not for a second claim that our physical posture is more important than the posture of our hearts in prayer. But we shouldn't conclude that physical posture in prayer doesn't matter, that it's irrelevant. Note how frequently we read about bowing and kneeling and falling prostrate in the Bible as a physical posture in prayer. Think about the physicality of a baptism commanded in Scripture. Think about the close connection of body and soul in an act like sexual intercourse. Is sexual intercourse physical or spiritual? Again, we recognize the close connection between these things. It's both. Both the body and the soul are engaged in that. And think about this. When you think about sexual union, most theologians through the history of the church have not embraced a view of the pre-existence of the soul. In other words, that our souls existed before we became embodied. Most have not positively taught that. Rather, the general idea has been that the body and soul come into existence at the same time, which means it's not just your bodies, but your souls are created by God through a mysterious and yet very physical act of sexual union that is also deeply spiritual. I mean, think about that for a second, how close this connection is between spiritual and physical, soul and body. But this biblical emphasis on the body is probably most clearly evident when we think about the work of redemption, how Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Word, became flesh, was incarnate, and took upon himself a human body and lived a full human life in the fullness of humanity, breathing air, eating food, experiencing digestive processes. And he lived that life and then gave up that life by experiencing a physical death where he stopped breathing in air and he shed his physical blood without which none of us can be forgiven or cleansed apart from that work. And then his body was laid in a grave after he gave up that body, bearing the curse in the place of sinners. And then after being laid in the grave, he was raised again from the dead in a glorified physical body. The entire scope of the redemptive work of Jesus involves both indispensable physical aspects as well as spiritual aspects. Why? Because our bodies matter. Jesus came to redeem us soul and body. Because our bodies matter. Part of what makes us human, part of what makes me, me, and you, you. So, so what? So if there's a biblical emphasis of the body, what difference should that make? What kind of impact should it have 
to have a biblical view of the body or a biblical body image. Now, as we wrap things up, let me mention just a couple things. First, because your body matters, take care of your body. Taking care of your body is not of supreme value, but it's not of no value. Bodily training has some value, so take care of your bodies. Paul assumes a nourishing disposition toward our bodies. Just assumes that people will be caring well for their own bodies. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's instructing husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, his body. And this is what he says. No one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. Yeah, that's how you're supposed to treat your bodies. You're supposed to care for them because they matter. Paul also shows a sensitivity to Timothy's physical condition in this very letter in which he's writing to Timothy about fulfilling his spiritual obligations and shepherding a flock. He pauses to address Timothy's physical condition when he gives these instructions. One chapter later from what we read, he tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul's concerned about Timothy's physical health. So you should nourish and care well for your body. But it's not to achieve a perfect body. That's not our aim. We don't care for our bodies because we're trying to achieve some kind of perfect body or we think the ultimate beauty resides in our bodies. And as I've thought about this, I would say that the ultimate aim of taking care of your body is not to guarantee your secure physical health either because it's presumptuous to think that we actually control this. We don't control our physical health. God sometimes takes the gift of our health away from us through no fault of our own, through accidents or injuries or autoimmune diseases or the development of chronic illnesses that we don't know why they happen or simply through the unavoidable degenerative effects of aging. He takes the gift of physical health away from us in order to sanctify us through the gift of sickness and illness, to wean us off of the things of the world and to focus our attention upon him and him only, who is the giver of life. Charles Spurgeon once said this. Charles Spurgeon had his own battles with sickness. He said, I venture to say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. So the aim is not to achieve a perfect body, and it's not to guarantee our physical health. So what is the aim? The reason we care for our bodies is to be a faithful steward of what God has given us. That's why we care for our bodies, to be a faithful steward. Listen to what um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Body and soul, you belong to God. So glorify God in your body. We're stewards of our bodies. So take care of what God has given you as best as you can in order to fulfill the various callings that you have in your life as faithfully and as best as you can to God's glory. That's what we're striving for. So you shouldn't be plagued with guilt this morning if you don't look a certain way. You shouldn't be plagued with guilt for that. And you don't have to repent this morning if you're sick and if you're weak chronically so. But if you're neglecting to care for your body, either through not remaining as active 
as you're capable of remaining, taking care of your body that way, if you're neglecting a healthy, nutritional, dietary intake, or having just a blatant disregard of your body's need for sleep or rest, if that's the case, if you're neglecting your body, you're not being a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you. And you need to confess that and repent of it and take steps toward changing that. But second, a biblical emphasis on the body will mean that we think God's thoughts after him. And he's a God who looks on the inward and not just the outward. And that's what we should do too, in imitation of our God, that we look on the inward and not just the outward. So when we assess ourselves and others, we need to acknowledge that there's an inward beauty of godliness that's more than physical that all those who are in Christ Jesus possess that has not only present value, but eternal value. We need to believe that for ourselves and for others. And it means acknowledging that the ugliest thing about a person is not anything that's physical. It's sin. And the most beautiful thing about a person is not anything that's physical. It's a heart that loves God and delights in worshiping Jesus. Paul Tripp is correct when he said, there's nothing ever made that is more gorgeous than a heart ruled by an active and joyful worship of God. And there is but one surgeon who can produce such beauty, the Messiah, the suffering Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, and you want beauty, and you want life, then turn to Jesus in faith. You can't bring to him your good works to earn it. Turn to Jesus in faith and know that you can have the forgiveness of your sins, the cleansing of your filth, and you can have eternal life and the hope of life in a resurrected body. And that extreme makeover is already taking place inside the heart of every Christian who's looking to Jesus by faith. That work has already begun. That even though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. God the Father has taken the once ugly filth in our hearts and cleansed it through the blood of Jesus. He's taken up residence by the Holy Spirit and he's making us beautiful. And that divine makeover that has already started on the inside is eventually going to include our bodies as well when Jesus comes again. And we will be resurrected and perfected and glorified and beautified, body and soul forever and ever. Because God in his grace has provided for us a perfect specimen without spot or blemish so that all who look to him by faith can find true and lasting beauty in the beautiful one, Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good and we acknowledge that you have entrusted to us physical bodies to care well for as an act of faithfulness to you that we might be able to fulfill all callings with strength and with faithfulness. Lord, help us to do that. Cause us to repent of our overemphasis and our underemphasis on caring for ourselves physically. Help us to be faithful stewards of what you've entrusted us. Lord, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We acknowledge that and we worship you as the redeemer of our bodies as well as our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.